You're listening to a podcast produced by the Henry M. Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the EU Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit our website at jsis.washington.edu forward slash cwes euc. Can you see me? I can. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, welcome to our class. Uh, Christine Ingerberton, this is our Christian Bjorkdal. Good rock? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, and Christian, can you tell us a little bit about your background? And then I'll do the same for myself. Right. Tell you a bit about myself. I'm a rhetorical scholar. I work in rhetoric. Mm-hmm. I just started as a postdoc uh, on a project at, at the University of Oslo called Nordic Branding. Mm-hmm. It's one of, I think, 11 uh, smaller research programs on Nordic studies <coughs> over a period of eight years, I think mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the various programs, interdisciplinary programs that study the Nordic model and its kind of diffusion um, internationally. Uh, how ideas about the Nordic circulate both within Nordic countries and and outside. And my own project will be especially on uh, the idea of Nordic colonial innocence and how that idea is used in various contexts. So first of all, it's, uh, development aid and humanitarian uh, assistance. So, so what I'm doing here, the reason I reach out to you is um, that I'm interested in seeing how ideas about Nordic exceptionalism uh, what kind of support they have abroad um, among scholars, but also in uh, among aid practitioners, especially people who work with development aid. So uh, I'm interviewing, in addition to scholars, I'm also interviewing people in in the World Bank, uh, at the UN, and and so on. Okay, excellent. That sounds like a big project, but it sounds like a fascinating one. So instead of the the uh, the footprint of Norway um, outside of Norway as well as how it's viewed by scholars like myself who are teaching, you know, American students what Norway is. Okay. Um, and I don't know if you've read Scandinavian World Politics. It's really a, sort of one of the things that I use for, for teaching. It's I, I took my lecture notes and made a book. So uh, what I argue is uh, that social norms are so powerful in places like Norway. Now, of course, there's social norms in the United States, but because I'm a fish swimming in that water, I don't really have to worry about those norms. But when I went to Norway on a Fulbright grant, I could really feel that I was breaking norms. And the way that I was brought into line was typically by a harsh look by an elderly woman or some kind of scolding punosh. Uh, so um, I remember I got off the bus going to see the Friedrich Nansen Institute and meet uh, Eva Newman, who I admired greatly and I was starting to get into the p- constructionist um, approach and that kind of thing. And there was a nice little sort of paved walkway through the woods af- after you got off the bus before you get to this beautiful house, which used to be um, I, a, a very proper residence. and. I saw a blucke, one of those, the first uh, flowers of the year, and I just kind of knelt down and I picked it. 
And this woman coming the other way said, Nej, der skal du ikke gøre. En forholder, der ikke plåder for dig. Fire. Right? So she really scolded me. That was a really bad scolding. It says, you know, that flower is for everybody. It's not just for one person. Okay? So I was ashamed. I went into the to my interviews, you know, somehow a little bit downtrodden because I really had stepped on some major social norms. So um, I realized that these are powerful ways that societies can function together and can even agree to give over many years welfare at home, but also welfare abroad. I mean, the ability to give to people that you don't even know and say, oh, you're the poorest people in the world, you're not strategically important for us, unlike the US would be, but you're, you're willing to do that gracious act. And either that's Lutheranism, you know, maybe too much hard drinking, I don't know, what gives you that kind of ability to be so um, welcoming? Now, when others come to places like Norway and to also places like Sweden, Denmark, it gets harder. Because mm -hmm. suddenly, like the international, the development piece kind of comes home. Right. And so that's something I know you're wrestling with now. And I worked a little bit with uh, Elizabeth Oxfeld a little bit on a project on that. Um, but I think if sticking with your thesis and your set of ideas, um, Norway has done a beautiful job of branding. I mean, if anybody uses the um, Facebook, it's it's me, and it's right. it's a bad habit. But um, but they feed me things that I like, so I get all the Scandinavian stuff. I mean, they figure out what you like, and I get you know these things. So um, Iceland has beat you in the number of times that it has presented itself. It's like every day I'm seeing some you know, road in remote Iceland or, you know, some some kind of fish that's being served at a local restaurant. Uh, but Norway is close behind. And, and it has lovely images and, and portrayals that, um, and one of my uh, colleagues here was saying that he'd been to Berlin, and I said, well, that's fine, but have you been to Norway? And he said, no, because, and, I, and he said he was fascinated by the buildings in Berlin, I said, well, but it's not the buildings that are going to draw you to Norway. It's going to be right. the nature. Because nature is the religion. Nature is where you go to find peace. And nature is so powerful in the Norwegian context. Right. Can I just uh, play back something? Because uh, to the extent I'm interested in branding, it kind of follows on with the uh, so-called nation branding literature. I know. I know a little bit about that from the Baltic states, because we were in Estonia when they were branding themselves. Yeah. So it's, it's I mean, branding in that sense can be about, as you say, about nature, about making Norway into a tourist destination or something like mm -hmm. that. But it can also be uh, it can also refer to the type of thing that you've already addressed, like um, I'm focusing on, for instance, on Scandinavian solidarity, the idea that, mm -hmm. uh, as you just uh, mentioned, the idea that the Scandinavians, when they go out and give development aid, they have other another set of motivations, and I know you write about this in your book, could you um, elaborate on that? Where did you, because you, you seem to me to reinstate that idea, and, and uh, 
what, what makes you um, come to that conclusion? I mean, um, can yeah. you say again which conclusion? Because there's a several conclusions I'm throwing around here in my head. Here, go ahead. Right, right. The, the conclusion that uh, when you get the Canadian skin development phase, they have mm -hmm. another set of motivation for doing right. so. That's right. what you know the big uh, nations would have. Exactly. So I mean, there's there's different levels of of uh, engagement that the countries play, and. Um, I prefer to go back maybe a little bit and just talk about the fact that, you know, hegemons are responsible for keeping the sea lanes open. That's not something, you know, you're going to get involved with unless you're cooperating maybe with the United States or formerly Great Britain, right? Right. Um, but there's a whole group of societies that whose needs are not getting met um, because of the preoccupation with certain, you know, flashpoints. Certain places that um, that are geographically important or important to our oil policy, those kinds of things. And um, yet, I'm not saying that a, a deal has been made by more powerful states, but it certainly is an understanding that you know, please do help with that other you know group. And even the European Union, which I know we haven't gone there, but we're still partnering with um, the EU, has taken up some of its former colonial states and said, you know, if you could make these changes, we'd be delighted to kind of meet you halfway, trying to not to be neo-colonial. But I came up in my book with a sense of an underlying sort of uh, consensus in a society which um, is also reflecting a, a certain amount of Lutheranism, that if you go into a church, which I know you don't go into church very often, I, just happen to know that, but um, there's a usually a picture that says, "Remember the poor." And as Norway has become more affluent and is able to take care of itself, the next logical step is to help those in the poorest countries survive. And if they can be brought up, that also is good for markets, it's good for stability, you have fewer wars, you know, all of those things uh, come out of a notion of liberalism from political science. So um, if you and I trade together, um, we're less likely to go to war. And I think that um, there's also in, uh, at Cornell, I had a mentor and he said, well, isn't it just taking the welfare state and putting it on the globe? Like, the, the, you've been able to do this at home. It makes sense. It works. Um, it creates a peaceful society. It creates, you know, fewer uh, hungry mouths. And you imp sort of import that globally to the greatest degree that you can. And I think uh, we know that there's been times that sometimes the aid doesn't go exactly where it's supposed to go, or um, there needs to be some you know, um, some kind of monitoring to make sure that what the goals of the assistance are actually are met. But that's a very mi micro inside baseball perspective. Right. So, uh, if, if there's, as you say, it's a logical step for Scandinavian countries, why, why isn't it just the same for, for other nations? I mean, uh, and I mean, we might not, you know, compare to the U.S. or Great Britain, but say, 
the efficiency and capacity to deliver the welfare state at home is also dependent on more than 50% of whatever you produce or whatever you pump from the sea goes abroad. And in order to, to keep the, um, you know, the neighborhood stable, that kind of thing, and also the broader uh, political economy, uh, being global, you can't afford to just kind of, you know, close up the fences around you and say, we're happy here, you know, we have Higa and Kusili, so uh, we'll just be comfortable with that. It's more that if you can stabilize more markets, then you have more opportunities to export, right? And you also stabilize the world political economy. I mean, there's a really, really neat story, I think, um, that came out of the piracy of the Danish uh, ships going up the coast in, around Somalia. Um, it turned out to be young boys, and there's an American movie made about this, so I'm sure you've seen that as well in terms of branding. But um, the, they would take over the ships and basically hijack them, and it was an act of kind of, you know, terrorist type of act. And it, and it upset, obviously, the Marsh Company, the largest shipping company in Denmark. And then the Danes came home and they said, and this isn't exactly how it went, but let's play it like it did. Um, they said, you know, if we could get these young boys doing things at home, if they had enough things to do at home, they wouldn't want to jump our ships. Mm. And so you hear less of that now because they've, they've provided aid to Somalia to prevent the other. And I think that, to me, is incredibly creative. And <coughs> one of my uh, sort of branding aspects is trying to explain to American students that there are ideas that come out of this whole sort of Scandinavian uh, tradition that can also be practiced by either, uh, you know, states within the U.S. or with the U.S. government writ large. Right. Did that help? I may have wandered a little. No, that's okay, fine. Good. Could you elaborate, because you touched on it just in a sentence, uh, could you elaborate on, on the difference that uh, a co having a colonial <coughs> Okay. The, the amazing thing to yeah, me... Not okay, but listen, listen to this. I came to the University of Washington to start teaching. And I had read every book that I knew in political science, international relations on Scandinavia. And I read Norwegian, I can profit those friends, I understand a little bit Danish, you know, just enough to be dangerous. Talk to all the officials, this kind of thing. Nowhere was there any indication that there had been a colonial experience? I met a woman uh, here in the Jackson School and she said, oh, I'm taking uh, a group of students to Ghana and we're going to look at the Danish slaveholding, you know, is a huge, you know, empire there. And I said, the Danes? They didn't have slaves. Do you mean the Dutch? No, no, I mean the Danes. So I had to go through, and I have a colleague, uh, who has written a book about this that unfortunately doesn't get as much attention as it should. But Sweden had uh, Caribbean colonies. We've asked to have our Scandinavian meetings there. That was rejected. That was 
too bad. That would have been a great experience. No. And then the Danes, of course, were they were part of the Great Power period, and they sort of fell into that slave uh, model as a kind of economic model. And what was interesting to me was that they got out earlier than the other Europeans. And I've always wondered if that was like a conscientious reason or it just economically wasn't working. And what I've come to agree upon in my own thinking is that it was just an economic thing that was, it wasn't as if they even really thought about the whole issue of race. Now, how do you think that is, though? That I mean, you can um, you can go quite far in Scandinavian studies, or you can even actually you can even, even live in Scandinavia without knowing anything much about uh, our own colonial past. How do you yeah. think that is impossible to? I think to I think that's a lot of you know what is not talked about when you go maybe like when I would go and get interviews. It wasn't mentioned. It's not something you're proud of. Right? I mean, particularly yeah. in the current. But it's like when you start talking about whales. I did a study on whaling. People, you know, were actually very pretty unified that it was a right of societies to whale, which I actually, I think is, I respect that you can choose what you eat as long as you make it sustainable. But as soon as I took that position, I, you know, Greenpeace was at my door and, you know, what are you saying and, you know, that kind of thing. So, but there are things you don't, really like to talk about. So whaling would probably, you wouldn't introduce it, oh, we're a bunch of whalers. Would you like to read these books? That doesn't come up. And neither does uh, the norms that um, have changed when it comes to race. I have to tell you one quick story though. Um, I have a lot of quick stories, so you have to cut me off if it gets too, too long. But okay, my, my story was, um, we have an exchange with Bergen. So you can come and stay here for a year or, you know, half a year or a quarter. We can probably run the Oslo exchange through the Burger thing because I'm in charge and we haven't had as enough Norwegians coming in. Anyway, so we work closely with the people from the Rock, Rock on Center and all that kind of thing. Uh, so my, uh, my husband came over for one part of a quarter. And, um, and he was going to do some cooking and things like that. And he went off to the grocery store. And do you know the, the prominent name, and it's, I think it's still there, because this has been a little while, the prominent name of the, um, of any of the spices? Uh, oh, I, 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 I think I know what the, um, <laughs> Little hat, little hat, little orange top, and a hat. I'm not sure if it's there still, but, uh, yeah. It's called Black Boy. Right. And my husband, who'd served in the Peace Corps, you know, very sort of, you know, into social justice type things, he said, how can a nation like Norway have a cinnamon that's called Black Boy, with a boy yeah. running over it like a little black sambo? And I said, yeah. I never, you know, I didn't even notice that, because I had just, you know, picked up what was what I needed, and I hadn't really thought about it, but he was very conscious about thinking about it. So, and it may have gone away. So that's your homework to find out if that still exists in the, in, or if people, or if norms have, you know, changed globally so that that would not be appropriate. Yeah, I, I know that well, but I, I, now that you mention it, I, I think I haven't seen it for a while. So I'm See? Not quite sure. Okay. But what, what, what would be your answer to that question? Or how can it be that the nation like Norway can 
tend to fight for than anyone does. Okay, so what happens, I think, to a lot of Americans, and, and Norwegians have even told me that, that the Americans that fall in love with Scandinavian are usually farther to the left. They're usually very sympathetic and interested in how the whole welfare state works. I mean, think about Bernie Sanders, you know, he was very, you know, romanticizing, you know, the whole Danish model and the, and the welfare model. And he played an interesting role in our debate. But uh, people want to see this kind of, um, this model society or set, a set of model societies. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's sort of that selective perception that you pull out what you want to see. But it's also that some of these things are not very much written about, at least in English, so that we have access to these things. Right. Right. So it's not like you, it's not like that whole volume there, right beside you, is all about you know um, the colonial experience of you know Norway. I mean, you you see that in France, see that in you know other parts of Europe. They're still really struggling with that. And the flip side of that is. When the um, colonies ended throughout the rest of Europe, a lot of people came back, like the Algerians went to France, right? And you see all these, uh, you know, post-colonial uh, people in Spain, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you, you avoided that. I mean, it was really one Finn in Sweden and, you know, two nurses went up to help Norway. Those were the foreigners. And so... Yeah. This whole thing about the other and about, you know, adjusting is coming not because of colonialism, but because of a kind of post-colonial, um, you know, sort of almost overwhelming the, the home state. So, I mean, name, name a couple of books that are written about, you know, Scandinavian colonialism. I mean, other than Ikea, you know, you could say that's a kind of like capitalist colonialism. Everybody should yeah. live like a Swede, right? But um, but there's really not much written about that. No. And it's a, and it's a dark period, you know, in many ways. And so people don't really care to think of Scandinavia in that way either. Right. So we're we're more sympathetic. So I mean, I I don't mind going to dark places in Scandinavia and talk about. You know, how the Danes said, hey, just go up to Sweden when the Syrians came. You know, I don't mind talking about that, but I think what most people remember are the generosity of all people within the society um, and a desire to introduce a little more flexibility over time, a little more private sector, a little more farther to the right, but it's and essentially... This the system still holds. Mm. You have to remember that I was in the period there when they before the petroleum regime. So Hans Henrik Ram took me out to a very stuffy pub and explained to me how that sovereign wealth fund was to be managed, and mm. it was to be for everybody. He said Ingebrigtsen, it's for everybody. It's not for just a few. And he was thinking, you know, about me and, you know, the TV show Dallas, where there's all these really well, wealthy petroleum guys. Right. So, um, and I wish I had that napkin that he sketched out, you know, where I would work. So I think I would be very famous for that. Yeah. <laughs> they would come and see the napkin. 
Anyway, but um, getting back to that, there are things that we write about ourselves um, only after we've been able to process them. We just had the the Viet Vietnam series uh, came on PB PBS, ten episodes of how we got in, why we got in, you know, who was telling the truth, who wasn't, you know, and it was a, it was kind of a rough series for us to, to look at ourselves and say how do we get into this where's the hubris and thinking that just because France couldn't do this that you know we could so it takes a, some pretty hard self-reflection and you know there may be people or editors that don't want that to get out there I don't know right. um, you're, you're probably right uh, I think that Things have been changing just in the last couple of years. I think I remember, um, I think I, I mentioned in an email that that uh, there's now this five-volume um, set book that out on Danish colonial history just came out. I think this year or perhaps late last year, uh, which is you know at least something towards uh, dealing with uh, our colonial past. In Norway, though. Um, Hardly anything has been done on this part of our history at all because I think we tend to think of ourselves as being sort of semi-colonized by the Danes. Yeah, yeah. Precisely the same period, you know. No, uh, you get a buy. You don't. You didn't have a. You didn't have a big uh, slavery tradition. So um, and there hasn't. I mean, I think about you know uh, heroic people. You know. Skiing across Greenland, you know, and then depicted right. in the Weir and Shoals, you know, sort of with a kind of like Viking presence. So I think I think you kind of get a buy on that. Yeah. But uh, but I'd be interested to read the Danish. Uh, is it a series or is it a single book? Five books. But they're, but I bet they're only in Danish. They are. Yes. See, <laughs> so how are my students going to read those books? All they know is the word "higa." And that's not going to get them very far when we're talking about that topic. So that should be put into a translation going. Yeah, yeah. We're or working on it. A few, a few of us are working on it. Okay, good. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to be bossy. Sorry. We're working on the, on that the project anyway. Okay. And I'm not sure about the translation, but we're definitely working on that theme, I think, a few of us. How about Sweden? Was the Sweden a different kind? Sweden was smaller, right? Or yeah, yeah it was smaller, kind of more concentrated. And uh, but the Danes were—I mean, I think they, you could say they were more of a like a small empire. Yes, they were. They were got into the settlement because they even had settled, uh, colonist settlement. Correct. Uh, Whereas the Swedes were. Not on the same scale as my understanding. That's what so I understand too. Their attempt to deal with uh, that part of their history has also been uh, even less than, than the Danes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> some kind of balance there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just press you on one thing from uh, from your book because there's something I don't quite understand when it comes to the way you um, describe Scandinavian countries because you focus very heavily in your book on norms. Uh, on norms as being what motivates, you know, the, the peculiarities of Scandinavia, as it were. Um, but then you do also acknowledge that, well, it, it can be a strategic element to being kind of norm-driven. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you make that point. You say, well, it's not either norms or you know strategic power uh, objectives, but it's kind of both when you're a small country. Uh, can you explain yeah. that? Yeah. So you can play, I think in, this has been done um, in very many ways, but you can play on the your your legitimacy as a society that has, you know, sort of kept together around a particular set of ideals, and then you can go out like Olaf Palme did and criticize the Vietnam War. Um, and, you know, Sweden hadn't been made more like that, so it was, you know, legitimate for him to go out there and say, you know, you don't belong there. You should take those boys home. And that was pretty hard hitting. And so then, um, you know, there was some very tough language about Sweden, you know, from, from the U.S. because of that, um, bold statement. Grohan Brundtland, she, you know, drafts our common future with a committee for the U.N. And then she goes around, you know, maybe not as, as active as Al Gore, although they're friends. Um, she goes around the world and says, you know, climate change is here. You know, we're going up to, you know, four degrees. Um, we need to have a sustainable view of how we manage this planet. And then she becomes an elder, which to me helps me sleep better at night because you know these super, super, charge, you know, leaders, um, this thing was founded by uh, Nelson Mandela, that she's one of those people along with, um, you know, another group, uh, some Scandinavians, some non-Scandinavians, who use the social norms of, you know, promoting peace, fixing the environment, caring about nature. All these things get um, sort of bound up in a almost a fourth level of governance, in my mind. Right. So, um, and, you know, yes, sometimes there's setbacks, sometimes there's major um, steps forward, but I think that uh, the norms, particularly the norm moving from industrial society, not that you ever had an industrial society really, but the rest of Scandinavia has had some sort of industry, the industrial mode to the sustainability society. That's what I think is happening now, and I think it's really a very interesting move. Yeah. Uh, if I can just kind of phrase the same question a bit differently. Uh, you mentioned Ivan Norman, and he, uh, with uh, Benjamin de Carvalho, has this idea about um, Norway's actions on the international stage being, uh, as their book is called, small state status taking. So how how can you kind of um, how can you combine status seeking with norm driven action? Okay, okay. The easiest answer to that would be the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm. And you could also go down into the literary prizes because those are norm driven too. You're not going to give you know them to people that are you know wearing furs and you know doing bad things. So, um, but actually wearing furs is okay. Um, doing bad things by the international community would be like whaling or something like that. Right, yeah. So, um, the Nobel Peace Prize is loaded with norms. Um, it says this is how the world should be governed according to Norway's uh, decision making. 
And so when Obama got the um, prize so early, I got a call from my mother. Christine, why did the Norwegians give that prize? It's too early. There's too much pressure on them. It's not good. I don't understand what is happening. Explain this. I said, well, because we're just coming off the George W. Bush regime, and you know, you know that he's not going to get a Nobel Prize. Um, and she got that. And I said, but he is hearing a voice from Northern Europe that says, work towards peace, work towards solving hun hunger, take up the other issues that have been abandoned by two uh, regimes uh, previous. So um, I think that uh, the Nobel Prize really does have that cachet, and it's held by the Norwegians because even the Swedes thought that the Norwegians were more like equitable, and they were involved in international labor organization, and they were they were the best players in the North to carry that weight. Even though the Nobel family almost you know disowned the Sun. Yeah. Um, I don't have a. That many questions left, but I, towards the end, I, I was wondering if you could say something about um, how you think that uh, Nordic set of norms or Scandinavian set of norms has been challenged. You mentioned this too in your book, you know, I was wondering if you could um, elaborate on first what the main challenges to you through that way of life and that way of seeing the world, uh, what the main challenges are, and also um, whether that kind of impacts on the Scandinavian reputation, or mm -hmm. do you think it will have an impact on, on our reputation? Okay, that's a good question. I mean, I wrote my Scandinavian book without including uh, a chapter which was called Risks to Scandinavian Reputation. And I sent, I had sent the book, it was all, you know, all the rosy, nice things that Scandinavian does, feeding the poor, you know, having the top-notch Welfare state allowing you to have, you know, maternity, maternity uh, benefits, all this kind of thing. So it was a very rosy book. And he wrote back and he said, "Are there no challenges here? Is there nothing that is wrong? Why aren't we all living there?" You know, he kind of punch, gave me a punch in the nose, right? And I, and then I just, then I just let it go because I could see that this was kind of on the horizon. And this, the risk to reputation for Scandinavia is not being able to manage the newcomers that are coming to the society that do not grow up there and do not have their language. And to the credit of the Scandinavians and also some Americans, uh, at least in Minnesota, I guess that's sort of partly Scandinavian in Minnesota. Um, <clears throat> Carrie Lee, I think, is one of the people that started this, uh, this learning so social norms through the text. So you're a Syrian. You don't know a word of Norwegian, okay? And I give you a book, and we start rehearsing certain lines. Mm. So please repeat. It means we are not going to talk on the bus. So embedded in your little, you know, refrains that you may repeat are norms. To help the to help the newcomers understand why the old ladies are, are looking at them badly when they're talking on the bus, it's not something you do. So it becomes easier for them to fit in. And I think Norway is really trying, and so is the rest of Scandinavia, 
to not be an outlier of, you know, sort of, you know, we only want to take care of us or, you know, we want you guys to go away, you know, go on to a desert island somewhere. We want you to know, and this is something you can verify, but the development aid that would have gone to Syria, I'm pretty sure Jan Egeland brought that back to Norway to deal with the Syrian crisis. You can check that. Might, but that's right. that's what I understand, which is a brilliant move. You would have sent it there, but now the Syrians are here, so we use that development money to help you know smooth things over and make sure that people can fit in. Check me on that. That's a that's you know we don't do true facts sometimes in America. It just during this particular period in time. So that was something that I read somewhere and that I didn't fact check. So, but it makes sense. I don't know the particulars of it, but I know that there is an, an opening for, for doing things like that, from, from moving uh, from Very smart. Very smart. Way. Just as kind of crisis, ma crisis management type thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, and then um, I have talked about the whaling. Uh, I wrote a, uh, an article about the whaling, which I'm happy to send you. I have actually put together all of the articles that I ever wrote in a in a book. You couldn't do that in... Beyond a little bit of time, but I mm -hmm. did that, and I can send it to you quietly. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, and I think uh, you should have that. Yeah, good. Yeah. All right. So I I'd just like to thank you and and your staff for uh, for having me uh, interview you. Well, thank you oh, very much. Okay, talk for now. Then we can meet and be together together. We hope hold the contact. Or we should come to Seattle. We can get with you. Okay. Thank you.